0: Good morning, see I don't, uh, I don't teach often, I think it's been a little while, but I always try to make sure that I'm here, not here the two Sundays before, that way I can maybe stumble into heresy that you heard truth really immediately prior, no, I'm just kidding, uh, I think we had a sick kid a couple of weeks ago and I was in the woods last week with a group from here and um, so I'm excited to be here. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Nathan Hicks. And uh, if you, we've not talked and you just see me standing around, uh, my wife would have you know that I am not as mean as I look and uh, I don't dislike you. It's just that my, the muscles of my face don't move when I smile. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. See, I'm sorry. It's going to distract me. The, let's see, I am i I'm a deacon here. It's an honor and a privilege to serve in that capacity and so uh, kind of in that vein, it seemed fitting that uh, that I might take an opportunity to speak to you today on this passage uh, that deals with qualifications for deacon uh, in First Timothy 3. I had a dream, uh, let's see, my schedule's been a bit crazy the last couple of weeks, and uh, when Mitch asked if I could preach, I knew that I probably shouldn't say yes, but I knew that I needed to say yes, so I just said yes uh, with complete disregard for the calendar. So my preparation uh, was a bit late in getting started, and I had a dream earlier this week that we were like, doing Lord's Supper and kind of singing the first songs, and I snuck off to the bathroom to begin and finish my preparation for, uh, for teaching. I didn't do that. I have uh, put in some time this week. Um, but some passages I was talking with Mitch this morning, some um, are very tidy and they wrap up nicely. And there's kind of a natural ebb and flow, and you know where the emphasis is. And uh, as I finished up uh, preparing this week, I just didn't have that sense. And so I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will um, speak to you today, and that where there needs to be emphasis, He will place emphasis. Uh, And in that vein, I'm going to say a quick prayer for us before we begin. Father, thank you for uh, this chance to gather as the body of Christ, and to worship together uh, through song and through word and through fellowship, and I ask that uh, as we explore and examine this text and what you have for us, that your spirit would be present, and that you would speak into the minds and hearts of your people, and that you would place emphasis uh, where there needs to be emphasis, and that we would all take from this um, what you would have us take. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we jump into 1 Timothy 3... I want to take just a second, um, without going too long, into kind of the origins of a deacon and, and just briefly what a deacon does, uh, because Paul is not really dealing with that in First Timothy. Um, there's while there's some debate on it, I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that you can look in Acts six and at least see what we have. A, we have a prototype for a deacon, kind of the first, uh, maybe one of the first instance, instances where the church needed. Um, people to fill that role that a deacon would later fill. So if you want to turn um, briefly to Acts 6 1 to 7, uh, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of Holy Spirit, and Philip, and someone else, Prochorus maybe, uh, Nicanor, and Tim, Timon, and Parmenus and Nicholas, uh a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, So these guys were chosen because uh, the leaders of the church were kind of getting bogged down in the daily distribution of food to the widows. And there was kind of some grumbling and complaining. And um, the apostle said, look, this is important work and it needs to be done, but our focus is something else. And so we need people that can help um, make sure that these needs are met while at the same time freeing us to do the main thing. We need to be focused on... um, teaching and on ministry uh, through prayer and the word so uh, that's kind of where we first see deacons at work and there's uh arguing uh, oh they're not deacons the the luke didn't use the word deacons um but consider this maybe they luke didn't use the word deacons because they weren't called deacons at the time luke was a historian so he's writing it as a hey, as it was in that time it was seven we called them the seven this is what they did later that role turns into what we now know as deacons Um, At any rate, a deacon's role and what deacons within the body of three Rivers aim to do is to serve you, to pray for you, and to help meet the tangible needs uh, that come about in the life of the church, Um, especially when there are needs that go unmet. And I think one of the remarkable things about this body of Christ is that there aren't a whole lot of needs that go unmet or that fall through the cracks. Um, You guys are connected in such a way and plugged in and you have an ear to the ground in such a way that oftentimes... When uh, deacons or elders, either one, hear of a need, it is, um, it is because it's already been met. And so, oh, by the way, this happened. Uh, it's taken care of, but maybe you should know. And that is a huge, uh, that's a huge thing. That's a, a testimony to you guys um, ministering to one another and loving on one another and doing God's work. Um, nonetheless, deacons exist to, to sometimes help facilitate that process, uh, to sometimes help plug holes and gaps when they do exist. And and sometimes just to communicate a need to to you all um, so that we can help make sure that thing happens. As we talked, uh, Deacon's talk a few weeks ago, months ago, I don't know, it occurred to me that a lot of what we do is facilitating community and encouraging you guys um, to to be plugged into this body in such a way that community happens on a natural, ongoing, and regular basis. Uh, So that means being plugged in in a life group. Um Being plugged into this body beyond coming and sitting here on Sunday and leaving and kind of kind of doing your own thing because when you do that, uh, it makes it very difficult for us to know what's going on in your life. It makes it very difficult for you to know what's going on in other people's lives, and community can't exist without that happening without you knowing what's happening uh, with everyone else and everyone else knowing what's happening with you. So sometimes um, there's a bit of a bit of um, us just trying to encourage and foster. Um, and facilitate the sense of community within our body. As uh, as we've looked at the structure of the church over the last few weeks, uh, and, and as Mitch has talked through the first part of this chapter, uh, it's become evident to me how gracious the Father is and what He provides to us in Scripture. Uh, it is amazing to me that we find enough information in these passages to provide some guidance that will give us structure in how the church should be ordered. But there's enough um, lack of information or enough flexibility so that we can adapt the methods and processes to our unique needs to our unique culture um, to the makeup of this body of of Christ in this particular fellowship that 's pretty cool thing isn't it um, I'll say this from the beginning as well we have a need for more deacons and uh, and we're working through what that looks like and and how to um, to install people into that, into that position so as we talk today, uh, I would encourage you to listen prayerfully and to pay attention to how the Spirit may be prompting you, um, and I have no doubt that as God has done in the past, um, He will provide hands for His work and, uh, and to make sure that the people's, the, His people's needs are met. So l- let's look at 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Um, Paul says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, For themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So he starts off and he says likewise. So you ask like what? And uh, Paul is immediately looking back to the the discourse that he's just laid out about qualifications for overseers. And as we move through the qualifications for deacons. We need to bear in mind that they are similar to the qualifications for elder um, in a few ways. First they're not qualifications only for deacons. Um, and they're not things that apply only to deacons, but can be dismissed by everyone else, right? And if you were here last week, uh, Mitch talked about that as believers in Christ, we're all called to the conduct, um, that's described in this passage They're for everyone. Second, uh, these are character and heart matters. They're not simply behavioral instructions and they refer to trends over time. And as Mitch said last week, it's as if you were looking at a movie, not a snapshot, um, the third similarity is that Paul applies these uh, qualifications to the office of deacon because similar and similar to fashion to the elders, the deacons would be among the first to face backlash or persecution for their faith in Christ and their work in the church. Right, so there's trouble brewing. Let's drag the leaders out. Let's kind of put them to the test first. And if you want a modern day example of this, uh, think about the establishment of the church in our country. And by our country, you know what country I mean. Uh, Do all believers need to act this way? Absolutely. This is conduct for everyone. Um, But who's going to be the first to be targeted by those who oppose the advance of the gospel and the establishment of the church? It will be those in leadership positions, right? Uh, Those who visibly represent Christ's bride, and so therefore it is essential that they exhibit the traits and the characteristics that Paul goes on to describe. The fourth similarity comes in the form of some specific qualifications Uh, that overlap with qualifications for elders and overseers, and those will become evident uh, as we move through the passage. If you weren't here last week, uh, as I wasn't, and you haven't listened to Mitch's sermon yet, dealing with the qualifications for the overseers, it was part three of three. um, You need to do that. And you need to either go on the website or go on uh, iTunes and download it as a podcast. Um, First, because it's excellent, and the framework is... and dealing with either elders or deacons is best viewed in light of the other. So it's better if you are kind of looking at the whole lot of it. So this will make more sense if you've heard what he had to say about elders. Um, and also because I won't necessarily rehash every point that he made where there's overlap um, this week. So if you didn't hear it, go this week uh, and get it and listen. So we, we mentioned there are four similarities between qualifications for pastors and for deacons. Are there any dissimilarities? Are there any ways in which qualifications for deacon are unlike that uh, of elders? And there are two that stand out to me. The first kind of most notable thing that is mentioned for elders and not for deacons is the ability to teach. Um, That's something that distinguishes an elder from a deacon. I'm a deacon. Bear in mind. You guys will get that later. Uh, let's see, the second is that the other uh, the other is that the qualifications for elder may seem a bit more stringent and a bit more detailed. He goes into uh, into more detail as he explains those. Um, but remember, the characteristics are for everyone, right? Not just for deacons, not just for elders. Um, they're all things to which we ought to uh, aspire. So why the distinction? Why does he go into more detail for elders? Well, it isn't so much that the additional requirements for an elder wouldn't be useful for a deacon. The, the things that he spells out, it'd be great. It's great if we all have them, um, but Paul pinpoints the need for overseers um, and deacons to meet the those requirements because they'll, they'll be the first to face um, the backlash. We've talked about that, but the nature of an elder's job requires them to deal with some heavy things and some weighty things and some things that are not pleasant to walk through, um, be it false teaching or internal conflict and difficulty in the church, um, outside attack. And so the weight and some of the responsibility that falls on an elder is just heavy. And so Paul is saying we need to be a little bit more stringent uh, and a little bit more focused in what is required of an elder because they're going to need it. So it's not only preserving the church, but it's preserving the elder and preserving the person that's serving that capacity. So his his lack of detail or, or the, the lessened uh, qualifications for an elder or for a deacon, rather aren't so much about the deacon, but it's about the elder. Does that make sense? He goes into more detail for the elder because the elder needs it in the, the way that his role is carried out in, in the church. So getting on to verse eight, likewise, there are similarities. there are some differences, um, but going on, he says um, that deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. So let's take them one at a time. Uh, Dignified. This one's pretty straightforward, right? We all have a sense of what it means to be dignified, uh, that we ought to exhibit some level of modesty and decorum, uh, to maintain some composure in a manner that warrants some level of respect. Some of us have more trouble with that um, than others, but we get the gist. Um, The Greek, I think, is neat because it goes a step further. And it adds a nuance that's important. The Greek word implies not just an earthly dignity, not just a dignity uh, acknowledged by our peers in this culture, but one that's connected to our faith in Christ. So a dignity as if um, from above. And uh, we ought to carry ourselves, um, Paul is implying, with a demeanor and an attitude that's inviting, that encourages worship, and that points one another to Christ, points people to Christ. And so we, we need to do that in two ways. One, we need to do that to the outside world. We ought to, um, to carry ourselves with dignity that reflects well on, the, on Christ and on the church. And we also ought to do that with one another uh, within the body of Christ. So that if we are always pointing one another to Christ and encouraging an attitude and a manner of worship, uh, then Christ is glorified in our midst. Not double-tongued. Uh, so it 's important that deacons and everyone um, be able to control their speech, so obviously deacons need to be trustworthy and honest um, be able to keep confidence of those who share things with them. Um, we ought to be able to refrain from spreading or entertaining rum- rumors uh, as we all should, and to go a step further um, to use our speech in a manner that 's edifying and uplifting um, to the body of Christ listen. And I, I trust that we've all experienced this. Don't doubt the ability of the tongue to undermine the work of the gospel um, of Christ in, in the church and out, outside of the church. Uh, don't undermine the ability of the tongue to inflict long-lasting, deep wounds that hurt, uh, that scar, that disrupt um, what Christ is doing in the life of the person and the life of the church. And scripture has a lot to say on the matter. Just read through Proverbs, um, but it still is—it still happens, right? It's still, it's still tough. So here's a warning for all of us: watch your mouth. It's that—it's that simple. If you have something to say, if there's something that's bothering you or gnawing at you, you have questions, um, something that doesn't sit well, you take issue with something, then then I would encourage you to do a few things. One is pray. And examine your own heart in the matter. Is it something that's legitimately. It needs to be dealt with. And you have some legitimate concerns. Or are you just kind of being a jerk. Because we can all do that right. We can all um, take issue. Not with what is said. But with the one who said it. And we just kind of let it get twisted. And turned around. um, And and let sin run rampant. So examine your heart. Your motivation. uh, And pray through that. And then say something. And say it to the right person. So go to the. The person that you take issue with or that uh, that can answer the question and deal with it one on one and it's cowardly to go uh, around behind someone's back or to go under the guise of prayer or help me work through this and then to just unleash uh, whatever it is that's bothering you whatever gripe that you have uh, with someone who's not in any ability to offer resolution to you so go to the right person uh, deal with it up front. And then if you are willing to do that, if something has bothered you and you are willing to go to the point of saying something, then you must be committed to quietly and diligently working to resolution and reconciliation and, and getting that smoothed out. And you've got to understand that that may mean there's something in you that's got to change or you got to give. You may be the one that's got uh, an improper perspective. I thought of, a, of an example um, Does anyone have a blister? Anyone ever had a blister before? Either from working in the yard or hiking? Um, So it doesn't take much sand to create a blister, right? Sand gets in. uh, There is friction. After enough friction, there's a blister. Has anyone ever had something go beyond a blister? Blister pops. What happens? You get... (laughs) Josh. (laughs) Get a really nasty wound, right? Bloody flesh. Sometimes skin is dangling. Um it's oh, good. Oozing. we you can continue painting the picture if you want. Um ha- you know what happens after that? And it's great for uh it's great for hiking, it's probably great for tennis, you get a callus and you don't you don't get blisters anymore. But it also means that you don't feel anymore. And so it it takes the smallest um seed of discontent to create friction. To create a blister, to create a wound, and if left unresolved, um, to create a heart that's callous uh, in a particular area. So, watch your mouth, uh, guard your tongue, don't be double-tongued, um, and deal with things appropriately um, as, they, as they come up among us. Alright, not, not addicted to too much wine. So this is the obvious and natural place for me to point out that Scripture doesn't prohibit the use of alcohol, Right? Um, That it says not addicted to much wine, which implies that I can enjoy some wine, right? Um, now it's my inclination to make this point because because of my upbringing. So I grew up uh, essentially thinking that alcohol was a sin, um, and and you just stayed away from it. And so uh, and in fact to this day I think my mom knows it's not a sin, but we kind of have an agreement. I put the wine away when she visits. And we just both pretend that I don't drink. <laughs> she knows to the contrary. I know she knows. We just don't talk about it. Uh, so my tendency because of that is to want to celebrate uh, and by enjoying things responsibly and, and taking part in that. That's just because of my background. But while Paul is making a point um, about alcohol and that is valid, um, the statement he's making is bigger than just alcohol. Uh, and, and this will get continued in the next point. What Paul is saying is that we ought to um, we ought to practice self control. Uh, remember, he's not just dealing with, with behavior, so he's not just saying how you treat alcohol. He's dealing with character issues and issues of the heart. So whether you exercise your freedom in Christ by abstaining from alcohol or by enjoying it appropriately, uh, make certain that we live. We are to make certain that we live lives that are marked by self control. Um. Yeah. Not be given to something, uh, and, and and let it run you. So it carries uh, this theme of self-control on into the next um, statement in verse eight, where he says, "Not greedy for dishonest gain." So at the time, deacons have because of their role in the church had access to to various resources, right? And so Paul's instructing the deacons um, and us to exercise self-control in the use of kingdom resources, um, to refrain from using our position as a means of personal gain. And again, it's a matter of the heart. He doesn't give you a checklist of what this looks like, of do these things, don't do these things, and you're good. Um, He requires that we keep our motivation in check. And what is it that drives us to to different actions or to how we use um, God's resources? So we've got to ask ourselves questions with regard um, to what we do with things like money and material possessions are, are probably the first ones that you think of. Um, but what about people and the relationships that God's placed around you? Aren't they a, relation, or aren't they a resource as well? Um, what about giftedness and knowledge and information? Remember, we don't have anything that God hasn't given us. So everything that we have at our disposal, how he's made us, uh, what material things we have um, to be used, the relationships that we have, everything that we have is a resource that he's given us and is a resource that belongs to Him that ought to to be used for His glory. So we have to constantly check our motivation and ask ourselves, are we using those things for our end or for His? And Paul is um, pleading with us, commanding it that we use them not for um, dishonest gain, that we not be greedy with that which the Father has given. So verse 9, he says, that they may hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I love that phrase, the mystery of the faith. Paul's concern here is that deacons, and again, all of us who proclaim Christ, adhere and believe and cling to what Alexander Straw calls distinctive truths of the Christian faith, specifically the the work of Christ um, for salvation. So remember, the church at Ephesus had been dealing with false teachers, and that was one of the reasons... Um, one of the things that Paul addresses in his letter, and so Paul's saying, "Look, if you're going to assume this office, if you're going to take a leadership role, then you've got to be authentic in your faith and in your belief in Christ. You got to be all in. Um, not only do you have to believe cognitively and understand and and agree to to what we're saying and the tenets of the faith, but you've got to live it daily and to the best of your ability, live it in such a way that you can maintain a clear conscience." Uh, with regard to how you live, lining up to what you say you believe, so it's starting to get real now. The qualification—I I feel like this one in verse nine makes a distinction between simply living morally and being an authentic follower of Christ. Because you can be dignified, you can not be given to much wine, um, you can cannot be double tongued or greedy, and you can do all that thing, all those things under the guise of morality and just being a good person, right? But you can't hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience just because you're a moral individual who wants to put on a good face and do what's socially acceptable. Look, false teaching even today runs rampant in our world. Our churches are filled in some instances with moral people, good people, good people, who have mistakenly and wrongfully reduced the gospel to a set of behaviors. For those of us who call Christ Savior, there's nothing more important that we do than knowing him and letting him seep into and rule every aspect of our life but paul's choice of word also reminds us that we're dependent on the holy spirit to reveal truth to us in scripture and that apart from that revelation truth remains a mystery and i have to, I, i'm gonna see if i can unpack this I, I have a thought and i'm gonna give it a go and and if you don't get it? Then sorry, it's you not. Uh, sorry, it's me not you. <laughs> um, and that is this: we live in a world, a, a world of choose your own truth, right? And a culture that abhors the idea of the absolute truth. Let's all just get along, unless your truth doesn't get along with mine. Then mine's right and yours is wrong. Uh, we live in a time that, when confronted by a difficult or unpleasant truth, it's perfectly acceptable. To deny it or discount it or simply say it doesn't apply to you. And the idea that God reveals truth to us is remarkable. I mean, it is amazing um, if you think about it. How cool is it that truth exists outside of you and I? It is, it's not within us. We don't contain it. It exists apart from us. Uh, and that means that it doesn't have to be tidy. It doesn't have to resolve easily and, and feel good and make sense all the time. Uh, And we as believers can rest in that when we face difficult truth. Uh, We can rest knowing that our creator and redeemer is the author of truth. And in his time, he He will reveal to us and he'll give us understanding. And up until the point that we have understanding, it's okay. We can can wrestle with things. It used to be, I think, there was a trend um, to just search. Like, oh, you know, it just was kind of cool, like new agey and... Um, I'm just searching. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, and I think people were really caught up in the search. They didn't really necessarily want to find an answer, right? Just kind of felt cool to try different things, and um, it, it was in vogue. And I think maybe we've moved past that a little bit. Uh, and so now it's like, you know, when I was a kid, you read these choose-your-own-adventure books, and it's like, oh, you're reading a pirate, and what do you want him to do? So one decision, you go to page nine; another, you go to page thirteen, and all. And we we live in a world of choose-your-own-truth, like. Oh, that sounds good, but I don't like it, so I'm going to choose this truth. Um, <laughs> at the end of that is you, right? If if you're choosing your own truth, and it, you're only choosing truth that you like and that feels good, then you're saying that you are the author of truth and the one that gives truth or gives something validity? <laughs> How dumb is that? I mean... I, yeah I, I guess we all struggle with um with arrogance at times and pride, but I think that takes the cake, doesn't it so as believers in Christ we can and must hold fast with a clear conscience to the mystery of the faith, um both the things that we do know and the things that we don't, and to be upfront about what we don't know when people confront you with something that's difficult or an unpleasant truth yeah I know man it is it is. I don't like it either, but that's what it says. And I'm praying that God will wrap my heart around it. And let's talk about it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't deny that truth is difficult. You can cling to it. You can, you can love the mystery of it with a clear conscience, knowing that in time the Holy Spirit will reveal truth uh, to us and understanding. Verse 10, uh, Paul says, let them be tested first. And then let them serve, serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So verse 10, Paul's speaking to the need to vet those who would aspire to serve as deacon. And again, it's a matter of character and integrity, uh, not simply behavior or ability. So Paul's not concerned necessarily with an aptitude test. Like, all right, come in today. You'll have the written portion of your deacon exam. Tomorrow we'll do the practical exam and we'll test you. And if you do, you know, whatever, 90% or better, then, then you're in. That's not. That's not it. He's addressing the need that we um, examine potential deacons' lives to ensure that they're genuine in their faith, um, that they indeed hold to the mystery of the faith, and that their lives reflect that. Look, the on, you know honestly, the church needs to know, you need to know, and I need to know that those who serve possess a faith that's tried and true, um, that they won't falter in times of difficulty, uh, that. Even that they've experienced challenges in life, um, challenges that have required them to cling to Christ, uh, and that they've done so faithfully that they're blameless. So it's just a matter of live life, be faithful to Christ. Let's see that that has happened before we install someone into a position of authority and a position of service. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, potentially we could have some fun here. Uh, Although probably not as much as as at first glance. And so as we move into verses 11 and 12, um, I want to just issue a general word of caution um, when it comes to studying Scripture. And that is this. We need to be quick to acknowledge and account for our own presuppositions when we read and study God's Word. Uh, So to pretend that you don't bring to Scripture a set of biases um, is to risk being reckless and irresponsible with God's Word. We exist uh, within a certain time and place. We live in a certain culture. We're the product of a particular upbringing, and on and on it goes. We all have a certain bent. And all of those things tint the lens through which we read Scripture. And so we've got to at least acknowledge that we come to the Scripture uh, with a bit of an agenda. Or we come with with, um, however many years old we are, worth of background that we're bringing with us that we will potentially um, use to to interpret Um, so we've got to work hard then to set aside preferences and yield to the holy spirit to give us understanding of truth Um, and we've got to be careful to to a not give more license than is allowed by scripture and b not place more restriction uh, than is given in scripture so regardless of the intent behind either, and both can be done in the best of intentions. You know, I think sometimes we see uh, maybe an area of the church or of culture um, living against the particular tenets of the faith, and, and we feel like we need to kind of fill the gaps. We start adding to Scripture, um, not because that's what it says, but because we want to try to bring things back into the fold. Uh, And and you can get out of line doing that. You can make the text say things that it won't. Or when the church has misbehaved and and potentially not dealt with parts of culture um, out of the love of Christ, you can become more permissive to try to demonstrate, Christ does love you. Does that make sense? So don't give more license than is due. Don't offer more restriction um, than is set forth. So I mention that now because sometimes this happens with both 11 and 12. They can kind of be trapped verses. And uh, I talked with Mitch some this week um, to make sure that, that I wasn't going to walk into heresy here. Um, and, and we talked about how both of these verses can kind of be trees for which you miss the proverbial forest. These verses, sometimes people want to use them to say things that they don't say and, and things that are kind of beside the point. Uh, and if you do that, you just miss the point of what Paul's saying. Um, and if you're going to miss the point of what he's saying, then why bother, right? So verse 11, um, depending on your translation, if you have ESV, which is what I read from, it says their wives. If you have, uh, something like NAS, it's, it translates it women. And that's where the trick comes in. That's where the, not trouble, but, but the trouble comes in. It's the, the same Greek word can be translated either way, wives or women. And usually the context makes it really clear um, what the author's intent is. And it probably was really clear to the readers at Ephesus. Uh, I, I doubt they batted an eye at it. They just knew. But we don't have all the facts. We don't know all the details. And so we don't exactly know which way uh, which way Paul meant it. And so uh, the reality is, though, it doesn't matter. So we'll look at some implications uh, of what if it's wives, what if it's women, and then we'll just move on and talk about why it, it could be either. So... One option is that it's wives and that Paul is given instructions in verse 11 um, to the deacons wives and saying, hey, wives of deacons, here's how you need to conduct yourselves. Another option is that it's women. And Paul is referring to a group of uh, women deacons um, in Ephesus or perhaps a, a group of women that are serving the church in some capacity. Uh, maybe it's Paul, Paul is just addressing the deacons and in Ephesus, they all put at this time happens in me to be male and and so he's talking hey you guys here's your wife so to use this uh, to say that women can't be deacons is a misuse of this passage of scripture because that's not what he's saying so we could come up options four five and six Uh, you tell me I mean we could kick things around all day long right and say well what if it's this or what if it's kind of this but kind of this so we could go around the room come up with a lot of options Uh, That kind of muddy the water. We could each place more emphasis on our argument than is necessary. Uh, We could get all riled up about it. uh, And in so doing we'd miss the whole point of what Paul is saying. Um, So we've got to be careful not to give in to the temptation. To get hung up on details of scripture that are unclear. Particularly when they don't matter. When they don't change the point of what um, is being said. So what's Paul saying? And why needn't we get hung up on that translation? Well remember... If if we all ought to live by uh, these qualifications, if we all ought to strive for these things, um, then it doesn't really matter whether he's talking to uh, to the wives of deacons or to women deacons, um, because it's something that we all ought to aspire. <coughs> you got does that make sense? One final note, I guess. Verse 11, I think, has a, not I think it does, it parallels verse 8 really nicely. And so Paul is, again, to whatever group of people he's talking about, he's saying uh, essentially the same thing as he is in uh, in verse 8. So in in verse 11 he says, um, be dignified, don't be slanderers, don't be double-tongued, be sober-minded, not addicted to much wine, be faithful in all things, not greedy for dishonest game. So there's a parallel there. Obviously he's talking to some subset. It's something that we all ought to strive for. Let's move forward. You guys good with that? Um, Verse 12. So let the deacons each be a husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So you guys dealt with this last week, right? Here's here's where I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because you guys did last week. Obviously, Paul is saying under no circumstances may someone who has been divorced be a deacon, right? No. You, got, you hear that? I'm kidding. You guys are, are uh, a bit lifeless this morning. So, Mitch, uh, Mitch talked very much to the opposite last week. And he explained things um, very clearly. He, you just need to listen. Um, so, that's not, what, that's not what Paul is saying at all. The phrase here, husband of one wife, literally means in the Greek, one, one, one woman man. So, Paul is not making a statement uh, about whether or not people who are single... Or who have been divorced are eligible to serve as deacon um, he's dealing with with issues of the heart so go listen to last week that's your assignment for this verse um, because he, he talks about it in qualifications for overseers as well um, and mitch yeah he, he dealt with it beautifully so paul is saying then he's insisting that deacons um, like elders, must be one woman men, or in the case of female deacons, that they must be one man women. Um, that is to say that they are completely devoted to their spouse in both thought and conduct, uh, and that if we play this out to its logical conclusion, we've got to remember that we are all called to that—to be either one woman men or one man women. I had to get the tenses right. Um. The end of that verse, he talks about managing your household well. And so obviously, when we are put in charge of things at church, um, there's some carryover between your ability to, to organize and take care of things in one area of life and your ability to do that in another. And I would imagine Paul is, is speaking um, to that point. I think there's another thing that happens as well, and that is this. Um, this requirement protects, protects you, it protects the family, and it protects the body of Christ. There are, there are moments um, where it doesn't feel like my household is managed well. Um, and that probably part of that is because I'm a really orderly person. I don't like chaos, and it's hard for there not to be at least snapshots of chaos um, with three young children uh, and at times a schedule that's kind of nuts. And so there are moments where that happens, and it's very difficult for me to think about anything outside of reestablishing some order and uh, and system to that household. And so if that is the way that, if that's the movie of your life, one, you're not really in a great shape to be of service to others. And two, if you are trying to worry about serving others and, and being concerned with others, then you're probably neglecting your own household. So I think there's a manner in which Paul is saying, look, if the household's not in order, they're probably not at a place that they can serve. Uh, so that, I, I think, is encouragement for all of us that we ought to have things in order in our household, in our job, in the parts of life away from church so that we can be in a place to serve one another. Right. Because serving one another, being a part of the community of Christ isn't an option. So we, we need to work and ask Christ to help us establish enough order in other areas of our life that we can be used um, in, in service to one another. All right, moving on, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good, good standing for themselves and also great confidence and faith that is in Christ. Now, there's a reward that comes as a result of serving one another in Christ. Um, as we see the body of Christ come together and meet needs, as we see Christ supply all that is, is required, as we see lives transformed, um, our faith grows and our confidence And Christ grows, and if you guys are involved in the lives of one another um, here at Three Rivers, you see that, right? So there is a need, and you discover it or hear about it, and then you see the body of Christ respond overwhelmingly to surround people within our fellowship um, to make sure that needs are met and that people are loved on. And when you see that happen, you can't help but grow and increase and be encouraged in your own faith Um, to see God keep His promises to see people be cared for. You know that when that time comes for you, that the body of Christ will take care of that. Come what may, when difficulty and trial and hardship come, um, you can have faith in Christ that He will supply people um, to to be His arms and legs and His hands and feet uh, and to care for one another. So the opportunity to see God at work through the body of Christ, to see believers take care of one another, offers a rich reward to anyone who serves. And that's be it elder or deacon or in a life group or connect group or or however that looks. Um, service isn't always about the needs that are met. It's about watching God work um, in among His people. I think that's that's the bigger issue. So a few things to, uh, in conclusion, a few things to, to take away. Uh, one is that all of us, all of us, and Christ are called to live lives that reflect the characteristic that Paul sets out. And as in, in places in scripture, other places where you see a list of attributes, the attributes are the byproduct of a relationship with Christ, right? That is, the attributes are realized not by seeking them, not by seeking the, the characteristic itself, but by seeking Christ, submitting to him and allowing him to mold and shape you. So the attribute is not the object. Christ is the object. The attribute is the result. So we become dignified not by seeking dignity, but by seeking Christ. He will make us dignified. And you can do that with each of the characteristics down the passage. Number two, when our lives are marked by the characteristics uh, that Paul sets forth, the outside world gets a proper view of Christ and the church. And unfortunately, the church gives the outside world plenty of improper Um, views you don't have to look far to see the results of sin in the church and that tends to be what culture and the outside world clings to so when we live lives that are marked by these things we offer to the outside world an accurate picture uh, of christ third thing is that when we live these things within the church we model christ to one another and like we talked about in verse 13 our faith is encouraged our confidence in the father's faithfulness is increased and we grow in Christ. And then lastly, taking from, uh, from earlier in the chapter, those who aspire to the office of deacon as elder um, desire a noble task. So if the Holy Spirit has prompted you toward considering further what it means to serve the church in, the, in this regard, um, then, then please follow up on that. Pray through that. Um, ask for clarification and, and talk to an elder or deacon about that, what that looks like and, and how that works. All right, let's pray. And... Um, And we'll go on. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for instruction on structure and how to order the church. That we may carry out your work uh, and be faithful to you. Thank you that you give us flexibility to adapt methods and um, and the way we do things to to particular needs of our body and of our culture and our town. Um, Thank you that this church embraces that. That we have, um, that we desire that, to do your work. To do things well, uh, and to take you to the nations. Thank you for a body that cares for one another, um, that lives in community, that meets one another's needs, and that offers encouragement um, in Christ to one another. God, I pray that as we leave here today, we would cling to you, um, that we would desire you above all else, and that we wouldn't um, seek after specific characteristics or attributes or um, or things in a list, but that we would want you. And we would want you to, um, to work in our lives, to mold us and shape us, and to change us into your image and likeness. Uh, and that we would take that up daily. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.